Well, not to sound too obvious, but it's a new year, isn't it? 2015. Can you believe it? When I was growing up in the 80s, I would have thought we would have been driving around in flying cars by now. But uh, we're not quite there yet. But as you know, this is that time of year when people are looking back over the previous year and evaluating what they've done well and those things that need improvement. It's also a good time for us to look ahead and set new goals and make new resolutions for the upcoming year. And one thing you'll notice on TV and in magazines at this time of year is that we're given a lot of suggestions on what our resolution should be, aren't we? At, at this time of year, you often read articles in magazines and see segments on TV with personal trainers and dietitians and financial advisors giving us advice on what our resolutions should be when it comes to exercise and nutrition and money management. So we've got a lot of options out there, right? On what our resolutions should be. And though making these kinds of commitments are, are good, and I would encourage you to, to make and honor those commitments this next year, I want to give you this morning what I believe needs to be a goal that all of us as believers set for ourselves this next year. This morning, I want to give you a biblical resolution for the new year, and here it is. I urge you this next year to make a commitment to make disciples. Make disciples in 2015. My prayer for you and for me as individuals and for us as a church is that we would be committed to escort people to Christ, establish them in truth, and equip them for ministry this next year. And if you're wondering what this looks like, we have a wonderful example given to us from the Apostle Paul. Paul was a disciple maker, wasn't he? He was. He was committed to Christ's great commission given in Matthew 28, where he told his followers, as you're going, as you're going out and living your lives, you're to be making disciples. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians 4. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 21 this morning. And as you're turning there, let me, let me bring you up to speed a little bit. Let me give you a bit of background into where we are this morning. 1 Corinthians is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church that he planted in Corinth. And this church had issues. This was one messy church. They had issues from the start, shortly after Paul left. This letter is thought to have been written five years after Paul left this church. And this letter is written to address all these issues that this church is already having. Paul is writing this letter to the Christians at Corinth and he's addressing these issues. And he's giving them solid biblical counsel in hopes that they would take his advice, take his counsel, and get back on track and get busy living for God. But this letter 
though written to a particular people at a particular time, is also written for us, isn't it? Because let's be honest, not a lot has changed since then when it comes to human behavior. So this letter, though written to a group of Christians at Corinth at a particular time in a particular place, it's also written for us to teach us how we're to deal with various issues of our own and issues in our church. And in our passage for today, though Paul spends a great deal of this book addressing all these issues, what Paul does in this text we're going to look at this morning is he shows us what the church needs most. He shows us what the lost needs, what spiritual infants need, what believers who are struggling need. He shows us here more than anything else People need to be saved and they need to be sanctified. They need salvation and they need sanctification. More than anything else, believers need to be made right with God and they need to be growing in godliness. They need to be escorted to Christ. They need to be established in truth and they need to be equipped for ministry. And again, if you're sitting out there wondering what this looks like, Paul shows us in this passage of Scripture. We have Paul's example. And he calls for us in verse 16 to be imitators of him. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look to the example of the Apostle Paul on what it means to be a disciple maker so that we can be disciple makers this next year in 2015. Notice the first characteristic we see in Paul of a disciple maker. First, we learn that disciple makers lead people to Christ. They lead people to Christ. Look at verse 15. Paul says, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul tells the Corinthians here, though you have a number of teachers, though you have many leaders, you do not have many fathers. Now, what is Paul talking about here? Of course they wouldn't have many fathers, right? They would only have one. Isn't that normally the way it works? Yeah. But notice the context. Paul is not talking about a father in a physical sense or in a biological sense, but in a spiritual sense. Notice what he says here. Paul says, I became your father, how? In Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul is referring to the special role that he has played in their spiritual life because he is the one that God used to lead them to Christ. This is a key characteristic, folks, of a disciple maker. Disciple makers share Christ. They lead people to Christ. Now, that's not all that they do, but that's a key part of what they do. Paul was the spiritual father and the chief discipler of the Corinthians. We learn in Acts 18, 
God used Paul initially in a, in a mighty way to make an impact in this city. And as Paul continued to faithfully serve Christ in Corinth and pour his life out and into the lives of other people, as he continued to preach and teach the Word of God, many came to Christ, and then a Christian community was started right there in Corinth. So Paul was the instrument that God used to birth the church in Corinth. Paul planted the seed, and out of that seed came Christian converts and a Christian community. Now some who have studied this text at the end of 1 Corinthians 4, they have trouble with Paul referring to himself as the father of the Corinthians. Some say, you know, I thought we're Protestants. You know, I thought we're a Bible church. We don't refer to one another as father. I thought salvation is solely a work of God. So why is Paul taking any credit? Well, before we explain that, look at verse 15 again. He says, I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. You see, there are two essential agents mentioned other than Paul here that brought about the salvation of the Corinthians in verse 15. He mentions Christ and he mentions the gospel. Paul rightly realized, he rightly recognized no one comes to saving faith in Christ apart from Christ and apart from God's gospel. The gospel message is what makes salvation understandable. That's how we come to know what salvation is. How we know what the, the work that God's done and the work that Christ has accomplished for us is through God's gospel. So that must be included. Without the gospel, salvation is not understandable. And also, without the person and work of Christ, salvation is not possible. It's not available to us. So we need Christ. We need God's gospel. Salvation is a divine work that God does. He is the one who awakens us to faith. But there is a human agent in salvation. When Jesus told his disciples to pray to the Lord of the harvest, did he say, Pray that the Lord of the harvest would write the gospel message in the clouds or speak the message audibly from the heavens for all to hear. Is that what he says? No, he says, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. Jesus also told his followers in Matthew 28 once again, you're to go and you're to make disciples. In Acts 1.8, he calls for them to be his witnesses salvation is clearly a work of God. God uses people as his instruments for redemption. We are called to be his witnesses. Paul was called. We are called. That's why Paul says he refers to himself as their father because he is the one that God used to bring the Corinthians to saving faith. And we're called to be his witnesses as well. We're called to do this as well, folks. To make disciples, which is what Christ clearly calls for us to do in his word, we must take this, the gospel message, and push it out and make it known. It's what we're all called to do. And though it's up to God to save, get this, I truly believe that if you're faithful to be a witness for Christ to your kids and to your friends and to your family and to your co-workers, 
then nine times out of ten, you will produce something. You will reproduce. You will birth spiritual children. Now again, it's a work that God does, but God delights in using you, sharing his message in the power of his Holy Spirit to bring people in to the kingdom of God, to awaken people to saving faith. Maybe to some of you in here, it's a bit intimidating because you're afraid of rejection. You're afraid of what some might think. Or maybe it's because you don't feel as if you have a good handle on the gospel and you're fearful that you will misrepresent the message. If this is the way you're thinking, this is why it's so very important that you commit to come here week in and week out to get encouragement from your Christian brothers and sisters to represent Christ in the world and to get equipped, to get established in truth here so that you can be effective witnesses for God. This is why I primarily address believers on Sunday mornings. This is why we have equipping classes and FBU classes and small groups and Bible studies to establish you in the truth so that you can be equipped to be the church in the world and represent and reveal Christ to your friends and to your family and to your co-workers and to non-believers in your communities. So that's the first characteristic here of a disciple-maker. Disciple makers boldly share Christ and they lead people to him. Second, disciple makers lovingly correct God's people. Look back at verse 14. Paul says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Now, what are the things Paul's referring to here? Again, this is where context comes in. In the previous passage, Paul dishes out some harsh rebukes against the Corinthians. He says in verse 8, very sarcastically, you guys have all you want, don't you? You have arrived spiritually. You've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. That's what Paul's saying. He's being very sarcastic. He was saying to them, you guys, you got the Christian life licked, don't you? You got it all figured out. You're kings. You don't need us. He was very sarcastic with them. And the reason why is because that's the way many of them thought of themselves. Many did think they had the Christian life licked and they were doing things to set themselves apart from the rest of the crowd. They were a prideful people. And I'm sure Paul's sarcasm here hits hard on their pride. It was hard for them to hear. But here in verse 14, Paul gives the reason for his sarcasm. He says, my goal in criticizing you is not to beat you down. It's not to humiliate you. I'm not doing this to to belittle you. And I'm not doing this because I've had it with you. And I'm washing my hands of you. He says here in verse 14, I'm saying these things out of a love for you. I'm saying these things to humble you for the purpose of restoring you. He says, I do this to admonish you. Now, that word admonish is not a word in many of our vocabulary, right? We don't use this word a whole lot, but it's a very important word in this text. It means this. It means to criticize in love in hopes of a change. It's what admonish means. 
to criticize and love in hopes of a change. You see, Paul loved the Corinthians. He loved them deeply and dearly. In fact, the word beloved used here is the strongest kind of love, the deepest kind of love, not just a brotherly love, but the kind of love God shows his people, the kind of love that a father and mother give to a child. Parents, think about the way in which you love your children. First, you love them sacrificially, do you not? Which means you would lay down your own life for your kids. You love them with understanding. A father and mother who loves their children, they seek to understand their child so that they can seek and meet his or her needs. You also love them with patience. You don't just write your kids off the first time they make a mistake, but you continue to instruct them and correct them so that they can improve and hopefully so that they can become more of who God has created them to be. This is the way Paul loved the Corinthians. He loved them sacrificially. He loved them with patience. He loved them with understanding. He didn't quit on them, but he came to their aid. He sought to understand their situation so that he could help them and direct them back to God. Did he get heated with them? Sure he did. What parent doesn't who truly loves their child? If I see Ava or Edie doing something that I've told them not to do, I get heated with them, they get disciplined, and they cry. But I don't do it because I want to be mean to them. I don't do it because I just want to see my children cry. I do it because I love them. I do it because I am concerned for them spiritually, and I want to see them live for God. To be the disciple-makers that Christ has called us to be, we've got to love people in this way. We've got to be willing to speak hard truths in love to turn people around for the purpose of humbling them so that they can be restored. Now, we don't like to do this, do we? Some will say, you know, I know so-and-so is not living the way they're supposed to, but I'm going to love them anyways. Is that really love? You know, I think a lot of times that's just a cop-out for not having a difficult conversation. A lot of times we say, oh, it's all right, man. You, you know, I love you anyways in Christ. And not address their situation because we don't want to have that conversation. It's uncomfortable for us, so we don't address it. But is that truly love? We know that the path of sin leads to destruction, don't we? And death. Let me ask you this, parents. If your kids were walking down the middle of the street toward oncoming traffic are you going to just walk beside them and say I really think it's best for you to get out of the road but I love you no matter what you do is that how you're going to handle that situation no you are going to do everything in your power to get them out of harm's way aren't you we do that for our children should we not also do that for God's children Paul did Paul says, I admonish you. I criticize you in love because I want to see a change in your life. Believers, to be disciple makers, you need to be willing to admonish God's people. If you see a Christian brother or sister struggling spiritually, if you see them struggling in sin, 
You see them not living the way God has called for us to live. You need to be ready to speak hard truths into their lives. You need to be ready to admonish them to be critical of what they're doing in love in hopes of a changed behavior. Now you need to be tactful in the way you go about it, right? Shouldn't just publicly shame them, make a mockery out of them, belittle them, but you should rebuke in love in hopes of restoration. Believers, get this, we need to be willing to receive a rebuke, don't we? When we're struggling spiritually, we do. Solomon says this in Proverbs 13, 1, A wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to a rebuke. You know what a scoffer is? A scoffer is a pride-filled fool who thinks he's smarter than everyone in the room, thinks he's in need of nobody's advice but his own. That's a scoffer. Solomon says don't be like that. Don't be like the scoffer. Don't be like the pride-filled fool fool be willing to receive instruction that's the path of wisdom be willing to be rebuked and know that if it's done in love it's done for your own good this is an important part folks of being a disciple maker disciple makers criticize god's people in love when they're in the wrong because they love them and because they care about them believers let me ask you this morning do you love god's people in this way do you think about your closest friend or family member who is a believer maybe it's someone you've led to christ let me ask you this do you care about them enough to speak into their lives to go there to to have these difficult conversations to rebuke them in love when they're in the wrong so that they can become more of who god wants them to be let me tell you something that's the kind of friends i want That's the kind of love that I want people to show me. For those on the other end, let me tell you this, you need friends like that. Those types of people should be your best friends. I mean, what if our relationships look like this in the church? Can you imagine? What if this next year we just made the decision to not be okay with status quo Christianity? What if, what if you began this next year to confront problems when you see it in a believer's life? What if we began to challenge one another and push one another to grow in godliness and mature to another level spiritually? What if we made that decision this year? What if we swallowed our pride and accepted rebuke once in a while and took criticism to, to heart and made changes in our lives? Can you imagine what our church would look like if we would make that decision to lovingly correct one another and accept correction so that we could be more of who God has called us to be? That's the reason why God has you here, one of the main reasons in the church. Do you know that, believers? To sharpen one another, to push one another, to to move together in godliness. That's how it happens. May this be true of us. Here's the third characteristic of a disciple maker. They set a good example for God's people. Paul says in verse 16, I urge you then be imitators of me. 
Here in verse 16, Paul, like he does many times in Scripture, he puts himself out front. He puts himself out there. He says, I'll set the pattern. You follow. You follow me as I follow Christ. Now, I've heard pastors and teachers say this is in the past. They've said, live as I say, not as I do. Or they'll say, don't follow me, follow Jesus. But that's not really the biblical pattern for leadership, is it? That's what Jesus accused the Pharisees of doing, folks. Matthew 23, verses 2 through 4, he says this. The scribes and the Pharisees, they sit on Moses' seat. They preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Scribes and the Pharisees talked a big game. They they had their doctrines in order. They knew the Bible. They could quote God's law better than anyone, but they had a major problem. They didn't have a lifestyle to match. Paul here, he doesn't say follow my teachings does he he says follow me follow my life can you say that can you tell people if you live the way i live you'll be living the life christ called you to live can you say that if not what needs to change what's what's out of sync in your life spiritually is your christian walk consistent with your Christian confession? It's a question you need to ask yourself over and over again. Now, I'm sure many of us in here would, would confess that Christ is the Lord of our life. and Many of you would claim to be a follower of Him. Is your walk consistent with that confession? Does your life look like a life that's sold out for the cause of Christ? Parents, what kind of example are you setting in the home? When you leave this place, are you the kind of person there that you are here? It's one of the toughest places to disciple, isn't it? Because your kids, your spouse, they see you at your worst, don't they? They see you, they have to deal with you when you didn't get enough sleep the night before. They have to see you and deal with you when you're getting up at 5 a.m. to drive home from Arkansas on Christmas break, right? It was a rough day for me. They have to see you and deal with you when you come home tired and stressed out from a long day at work. It's one of the toughest places to disciple, but get this, it's one of the most important places that discipleship needs to take, needs to take place. What kind of example are you setting in the workplace? Believe me when I say that your coworkers are watching you. They are. They're watching to see how you respond in certain situations. They're sizing you up to see if you are the real deal, to see if your walk is consistent with what you say you believe. Discipleship, folks, is so much more, get this, it's so much more than teaching principles to people. It's living principles in front of people. That's discipleship. That's the way Paul viewed it. He could say, follow me as I follow Christ. Now, some of you upon hearing that will be tempted to say, well, that's Paul. He was a super Christian. Nobody could ever meet that standard. If that's the way you're thinking, you're wrong. Look at what he says in verse 17. 
Paul says, that is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. Now, when first reading this in context, it seems strange that verse 17 follows verse 16. Because in verse 16, Paul says, be imitators of me, and then he says, that's why I'm sending Timothy. It's kind of strange, isn't it? He says, I want you to follow me, so I'm sending him. What's the deal here? Wouldn't it make more sense for Paul to say, I want you to follow me, so I'm coming to you, and I'm going to live this life out before you? What's the deal here? I'll tell you. Here we have a great example of what results from being a disciple maker. Paul had done such an excellent job on discipling Timothy that Timothy going to Corinth was the same thing as Paul going there. Isn't that something? And he says when he gets there, he'll remind you of my ways. In other words, when Timothy gets to you, not only will his doctrine be the same as mine, but his life will match mine. Paul is saying when he arrives, you will have my example before you in Timothy. Why? Because Paul was a disciple maker. Believers, we need to be pouring our lives into people in this way. If you're further along spiritually than others, if you're more advanced in the faith, you need to be pouring your life into new and immature believers. And new and immature believers, to grow in godliness, you need to be seeking out these kinds of relationships so that we can all move together forward in the faith so that the church can be built up here so that we can be more like Christ when Christ called for us to make disciples in Matthew 28 Paul and Timothy is what he had in mind folks they're the standard and if you're wanting to know where do I begin again it begins right here begins here getting plugged in to the ministries that we have in place here at Fellowship by being plugged in on Sunday mornings, by being plugged in to our equipping classes and FBU classes and small group ministries and Bible studies. These ministries, folks, are not just in place because that's what church people do. They're in place for a purpose. They're in place to assist you, to help you grow in your knowledge of God and in the Christian faith. They're in place so that you can connect with men and women you can look to and learn from and men and women you can pour your life into. Fourth, disciple makers carefully instruct God's people. Look at verse 17. Paul says, That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Listen, though it's important to live out what you believe, like we just said, it's also important to carefully instruct others because let's be honest, you can't live out principles you've not been taught. Am I right? To be a disciple maker... Not only are you to walk the walk, but you have to teach. You have to talk the talk. You have to to teach others. And notice here that on top of Paul's 
teachings being from God, being biblical, they're also practical and applicable as well. Notice he says, Timothy will remind you of my ways, the way that he lives. Then he says, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Paul's teachings were applicable. Paul's teachings were doable. They were practical. Sometimes we have to crucify our intellectualism, don't we? And just teach basic, biblical, practical, and understandable truths from God's Word. John Stott said this. Look at this quote up here. He said, if we love them, our objective will not be to impress them with our learning, but to help them with theirs. Look at what Augustine said. Augustine said a wooden key is not as beautiful as a gold one, but if it can open the door when the gold one can't, it's far more useful. It's a great point, isn't it? The key is not to impress, it's to bring understanding. That's the key to teaching. I can honestly tell you up here, what I want to hear more than anything else after I teach is not, wow, you know a lot, but wow, I learned a lot. I get it. I understand. Now, that takes time, takes a lot of time and study to teach in this way, but it's needed. We need to teach not to impress, but to educate. Believers, though we have several in this church already, this church needs more gifted teachers for our children, for our youth, for our adults in small groups and Bible study settings. We need teachers who know the Bible, but not only that, teachers who can teach it accurately and understandably and practically. So a disciple maker is one who leads people to Christ, who lovingly corrects, sets a good example for, and carefully instructs God's people. And lastly, disciple makers effectively discipline God's people. It's a tough one here, right? Look at verses 18 through 21. Paul says, Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, I love that, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod? Wow. Or with love? in a spirit of gentleness. You know, there are times when a parent has to discipline their child, right? God has written this, parents, into our job description. This is important because you know what? If a child goes without discipline for a long period of time, he or she begins to think, I can do whatever I want to do and don't have to answer to anyone. They begin to think of themselves in an arrogant way and think that they're above any such discipline. That's exactly what happened in Corinth. They thought they had things figured out. They thought they had arrived spiritually. They thought they were something special, and they thought they could do whatever they wanted. Didn't have to answer to anybody. And that's what they were doing. They were living however they wanted to live. They were not being called to the carpet. And they became arrogant in Paul's absence. And Paul says in verse 18, he even says that. He says, some of you are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. Verse 19, if it be possible, if the Lord wills, he says, I'm coming. 
and we'll see who's all talk and who's the real deal. We'll see whose Christian walk is consistent with their Christian confession. He says this, I love this, for the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. In other words, talk is cheap. He says, when I come... I'll be able to tell who exhibits true Christian character, who's a true member of the kingdom of God, who's authentic, not by lofty words, but by lofty actions, by examining your life. Verse 21, Paul gives them a choice of how he's to come to them. He says, with love, in a spirit of gentleness, or with the rod? He says, how you want me to come, Corinthians? Notice the question remains open-ended because the choice is theirs parents you ever say this to your kids choice is yours you can obey me everything will be great or disobey and face the consequences yeah so what paul is doing here paul was not okay with the christians continuing in disobedience toward god and he basically says i'm going to get my message across to you guys but it's your choice on how i'm going to bring this message the easy way or the hard way believers once again we need to be speaking in to one another's lives in this way we need to at times be hard on one another in love Not because we want to be the boss, not because we want to rule over others, but because we love one another and because we want to see people spiritually healthy and living for God. And again, folks, that's the kind of friends you want. That's the kind of relationships you need to make in this church. So again, in closing, let me say this. I urge you, if you have not made this your resolution for 2015, make a commitment to make disciples this next year. Be a disciple maker by leading people to Christ and lovingly correcting, setting a good example for, carefully instructing and effectively disciplining God's people. I want to end with this. Many of the Corinthians we know were clearly in the wrong in in Paul's day though they needed to be corrected by him because of their attitudes and actions truth is scripture says all of us are in the wrong all of us without exception have sinned against God we have failed to measure up to God's perfect standard and because of that we deserve God's rod of discipline we deserve God's wrath but though that's the case folks Though God is a just God who hates, punishes sin, he's also a God of mercy and grace. And he demonstrated this for us by sending his son. And his son came, and we're told that he emptied himself, and he became one of us, and he suffered, and he died for us so that we through him could be forgiven and made right with God. Listen, folks, Scripture tells us Jesus endured the punishment that we deserved. He endured God's rod of discipline in our place. As we sing in here on occasion, he was crushed by God for us so that we through him could not be crushed, would not have to be crushed, and so that we through him could be brought back into a right relationship with God and be a child of his. That's what Christ has done for us. 
It's a wonderful gift, isn't it? And this wonderful gift can be yours today. If you confess your sin and turn from your sin, trust in God's Son alone for your salvation. Listen, if you've never made that decision, there's not a better way to start off 2015 than to make this decision right here, right now, today. If you have not, I urge you, turn from your sin. Make Christ your Lord. Trust in Him alone for your salvation and be saved. Let's pray.